HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit Firesider.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Imagine sending out a group of unemployed writers all over the country to find out what people really ate. We'll talk about that and more today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And there was a time in the Great Depression when there were a lot of people out of work, writers too, some of them known, some of them not so known. And they were employed by the government, but to do what? Well, today's guest is going to tell us all about what that was and more and about a project that she's working on to try to recapture a lot of that work. My guest is Dr. Helen Veit. Helen is an associate professor of history at Michigan State University. She specializes in American history of the 19th and 20th centuries, focusing on food and nutrition. Helen received her Ph.D. from Yale and is the author of the books Modern Food, Moral Food, and Small Appetites, and the editor of the American Food in History book series from Michigan State University Press. Two volumes have been released so far, Food in the Civil War Era, the North, and Food in the Civil War Era, the South, obviously, I guess that that would be the second one. Um, And Helen is the director of What America Ate Project, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, intended to create an innovative website and an online archive of culinary sources from the Great Depression. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Now, I I know that the, you know, I I didn't want to give away everything at the top of the show, but I know that a lot of the materials that you're using for this project are papers from the Depression era, the WPA America Eats program. Um, That's right. And, but amongst other things as well. But a lot of I mean, most people have no idea what the America Eats Project was. 
um, largely because it never came to fruition. Uh, could you please could you please explain to us exactly what that program was and what it aimed to uh, achieve? Absolutely. I had never heard of the America Eats program before a few years ago. So what happened is that during the Depression, one of the jobs creation programs that the U.S. government um, had as part of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, was a program they called the America Eats Program. And what it was intended to do was to send formerly unemployed writers and a few photographers around the country to document regional American eating practices. And the idea was that they would send them out um, for, you know, months at a time, sometimes even a few years at a time, and the writers would collect stories, they would interview cooks, they would transcribe recipes, and then they would send all of these materials back to the home office in Washington, D.C., where the plan was they would all be collected and edited and published in a big book or a few volumes of a big, um, a big book that would be this definitive record of authentic American eating. But well, what happened is that field workers were still out in the field in December 1941 when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the United States abruptly entered World War II. And the program was abruptly terminated just weeks later. As a result, a lot of these original field materials never even made it back to the Washington office. Some of them never made it anywhere. Um, as far as we know, some of them were just thrown away, you know, these essays, these, me- these um, recipes. Um, some made it into state repositories, a few university archives, but they've been scattered. Um, there has been a collection at the Library of Congress that has received some attention from scholars in recent years. But what our project is doing is that it's really taking these original America Eats papers, um, the ones from the Library of Congress, but also ones in four additional state collections, and we are consolidating them and digitizing them and making them fully text-searchable, and they will be freely and fully available to the public um, starting this coming spring in addition to some other materials I can talk about later from the Great Depression. Right. And that is absolutely terrific. So many people, um, as I say, don't know about it, but there are uh, a lot of people who have, over the years, tried to resurrect some of these papers, tried to find them. Um, and But a lot of these writers, not all of them, but a lot of the writers were were very good writers, some of them undiscovered at the time, but a lot of them, can you tell us that some of the names, some of the writers that we would recognize who were unemployed at the time or not even discovered at the time who were sent out to do this? Well, probably the most, two of the most famous were Nelson Algren and Zora Neale Hurston, mm-hmm. um, who were two, two of the most, um, you know, the most famous writers today. Um, and then a whole variety of, um, you know, of, of authors some of whom we actually don't, you know, a lot of the essays that have been collected don't have, don't have authors listed. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Um, and in a lot of cases, they were people who, um, you know, maybe were, you know, worked locally or were journalists who were out of work who, you know, never made a great name for themselves. But um, a lot of the essays make fabulous reading. You know, it's, it's been a pleasure working with them just because they're really fun to read. Right. I know that... Um Mark Kurlansky in particular, he wrote uh, a piece on the America Eats Project, and, and he wrote about one of the writers who, who we really don't 
know anything much more about, who was really a very good writer, Rose Shepard, as you say. Oh, yeah. Not someone we would recognize, but she right. was able to write in the voice of, she really captured the voice of some of the people in the area. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. Now, were they really, what was their, did they have a, a mission, a directive? Well, interestingly, yes. So one of the things that our website will be stressing is the fact that you can't um, necessarily take all of these field workers at their word because there was a real emphasis on wanting to capture what these Washington administrators perceived as authentic, true, timeless American cooking. Um, And their goal was to preserve that in what they saw as the midst of a kind of threatening changes, the industrialization of food, the growth of national supermarket chains, um, the increasing transportation of food all around the country, the the potential death of of regional cuisines. So administrators wanted to counteract these forces by preserving what they saw as these, um, you know, timeless recipes. The problem is that, you know, as a, as a scholar or as a historian who works on food, when you look closely, you know, these recipes weren't timeless. You know, certainly they were really interesting rural recipes, um, you know, some of them just fabulously kind of different from what we might eat today. You know, descriptions, I'm thinking, for example, of um, descriptions of a cowboy bread called a dough god, or, um, you know, son-of-a-gun stew eaten by ranchers, or, you know, sea turtles that were eaten in Florida, you know, all sorts of really interesting stuff. And, and this, these were foods that Americans really were eating. The problem is that when field workers were recording these recipes, they were looking very selectively. Um, so they might have been talking about, um, you know, the, the immigrant who was eating, um, you know, the stewed, um, you know, beaver tail, which some people were eating, but they weren't, you know, talking about the person right next to them who was probably eating canned beans and um, biscuits made from a biscuit mix, which was right. equally common at this time period. So if you only were reading these sources, you would get a pretty skewed idea of what Americans in the Great Depression were eating. The, the focus was overwhelmingly on the rare, the regional, the quaint, um, and the, the vision was really a nostalgic vision. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because you have all these different people, all with a very different style of writing, and so obviously you're going to get different voices representing their work. And and I think it's I find it very interesting that it was a government project that basically was was trying to you know, reverse the fact that bad food was driving out good food and and sort of, uh, um, as you say, capturing the good food that was being made, the, the authentic food and and mm-hmm. highlighting the fact that people should be eating real food. And mm-hmm. here, we, right. here we are yeah. in 2015 doing, you know, much the same exactly. thing. That's, to me, that's one of the most powerful parts about this project is that it there's so, there are so many parallels with how we're approaching food today. And our desire to to return, you know, as many people see it, to return to a past that was more authentic or, um, you know, where food was less processed or less international, more local. Um, You know, and what's interesting is, is that today I think we might look to a time like the Depression and assume that food then was regional and real, 
But when you look closely, the people then were saying, you know, food now is way too modern. We've got to look, we've got to look further back where these older food customs have been preserved. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, and, and you say that you did use some other materials that, that for your, well, describe, yeah, your project is going to put this online and make it searchable. And it's not just papers from the America Eats Project, but you're using some other materials as well, correct? That's right. So um, the America Eats papers are, you know, I think the heart of the online archive that we're creating. But there are two other really important kinds of materials that will also be on the website, the What America Aid website. One of those is a collection of about 200 community cookbooks. Those were those cookbooks you might think of. um, Often they were spiral-bound and produced by small local organizations like maybe a PTA or a church group or a synagogue or a club, something like that, where they would take, um, you know, recipes that people in the community like to eat and they published them locally. So we've got about 200 from the Great Depression, and they come from all over the country. We, we have about 45 states represented, including what was then the territory of Hawaii. And I think this is a really valuable kind of source because um, they tend to, you know, really show what people were, you know, definitely cooking. You know, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of recipes in these 200 cookbooks. And they show, um, you know, what people, maybe what they wanted their neighbors to think they were eating. But, you know, for the most part, I think we can assume people were really cooking these recipes. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and and those community cookbooks, um, I think hopefully some still are thriving. They're, they're small communities that are putting out these cookbooks. But even back in the 70s, they were, they were huge. It was, a, it was, you know, every community, every group, as you say, whether it was PTA or Junior League or something like that, absolutely. church group, put out these books. And they did. They had remarkable, you could really trace great regional flavors, tastes. What, what did people want to read about? What did they want to make? And, then, and of course, sometimes it would be, um, you know, Laura Brown's carrot cake. And, and Laura Brown was, you know, maybe it was written from an Arkansas community cookbook, but Laura Brown got the recipe from her aunt in, you know, New York. So yes. they were, those were hard to trace. But indeed, they, are, they do, by and large, show such great regional flavor. Now, what about the America Eats papers? Did those really manage to capture the regionality, do you think? They, they definitely did. I mean, they're, they're, they're divided by region. The, the administrators designed the project to be regional. It looked at the south, the northeast, the middle west, the far west, and the southwest. And, you know, region was really um, preeminent in how they, how they approached um, how Americans were eating. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, again, like, you know, it was fairly selective. So that while, you know, you might read these papers and see, um, you know, Northeasterners eating clam chowder and, you know, baked beans and Southerners eating crackling cornbread and um, fried chicken and succotash. You know, we know, you know, and one, one thing that's great about these community cookbooks is that although they're somewhat regional, they show much more um, diversity within the region, mm-hmm. for one thing. People weren't only eating stereotypical regional dishes, but also in, in another sense that the nation as a, as a whole was eating more homogeneously. You see a lot of, you know, recipes popping up. You know, a, re- a community cookbook from Georgia might have a very similar recipe, you know, as a community cookbook in Boston or in Montana or in Arizona. So it's, it, it complicates the, the kind of black and white regional picture that's, 
can be painted in the America Eats papers. Right. Well, um, and, and of course, in the America Eats papers, one thing we do have to remember is that these writers went out, they were unemployed. They went out in the time of the Great Depression. So a lot of people were eating pretty much whatever they could get. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So it might they might have been, you know, one of the, the lessons from food history is that you can never point to the time when when food was static, food right. has always been changing. And so, you know, and, and the Great Depression is absolutely a, a great example of that, that because of the economic stresses of the Depression, people were eating differently as a result. So that's, you know, that's a great example. Exactly. Um, well, the, the, I was just going to say the third kind of source that we're going to be looking at in the America, in the What America Ate website further complicates all of this because we're looking at industrial food advertising and um, specifically at you know, advertisements at recipe booklets, at pamphlets, at posters, um, that sort of culinary ephemera that um, industrial forces and, and companies produced, which is, you know, sort of on the opposite of extreme is what we think of as the regional American eating of the America Eats projects. But that, I think, will be a really nice counterbalance to, to getting at what Americans really were eating. They were, and those, and those big food companies with their advertisements truly influenced what Americans did cook in their home. I mean, they bought the products and then did something. You have a wonderful um, uh, old advertisement on your website um, uh, for Jell-O. Yes. Yes. Was it enhance your table or something or the creative things you could do? Oh, my God. And who doesn't, you know, who of a certain age doesn't remember one of those tasty or not, you know, Jell-O salads? (laughs) Absolutely. And even, you know, it's funny, even in the in the America Eats papers, which tend to be, as I said, very selective, you still see Jell-O popping up as a dessert, even in meals that otherwise, you know, look very traditional. You know, they'll have, you know, this very, just, you know, interesting regional meal, and then they'll have Jell-O. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And sometimes to introduce unusual products to the American public, uh, one thing that I think of from your site again was coconut ways to use coconut real coconut or the flaked coconut i mean that's right not a common product for many people around the country absolutely yeah and one that was only increasingly available because of these you know new transportation forces um but that was becoming you know incorporated into what people started to think of as home cooking that's right well i want to talk more about the um the project that you are going to get up on the website soon and and about the America Eats Writers Project. And we will do that right after we come back from a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Firesider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. 
Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Helen Veit. And Helen is working on a project, What America Ate. Um, it's a new online project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. And Helen, um, we were talking about the use of the papers and just the the effort and the work to try to find, as you say, some of these papers that are probably some of them were thrown away, but the, those who are those that remain in some repositories, some libraries, some universities around the country. How, how do you go about tracing some of these? Well, we started with the low-hanging fruit for this project. <laughs> we, um, you know, we're, the first priority was getting the, the lion's share that were in the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, we found four, um, well, actually three state libraries in New York, Kentucky, and North Dakota and then the Montana State University Library had a big collection. And we had to write our grant application already a couple of years ago. And since then, we've located you know, other collections that we would love to incorporate down the road. Um, within our current budget, we're sticking with the original plan. But in fact, you know, I would you know, love to make a call. If anyone out there knows of other America Eats papers, we would love to hear about them, and we'd love to include them eventually. Indeed. Well, as I say, a couple of books have been published about the project, but again, they, you know, it's always the same thing. They run up against this brick wall of not being able to access all the materials. They know there's so much out there. Mark Kurlansky, as I mentioned, um, he mm-hmm. wrote something on, on uh, what, the food of a younger the food, the food of a younger land. Food of a younger land, right? And Pat Willard wrote America That's Eats, right. right? That's right. Um, and it's just, you know, what I find remarkable is that. It wasn't just food um, that they were out and capturing, but it was the the cultural experience as well. In particular, I'm thinking of uh, the 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 way people consume the food, the group eating events. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, Absolutely. are you dealing with any of that in the that definitely? That's. I mean, I think that is one reason why um, the National Endowment for the Humanities was interested in this project is because it really is so much more than just recipes. Um, you know, these essays are describing, you know, all sorts of social forms and, you know, cultural institutions and, you know, the way that people were interacting, um, you know, in terms of age or in terms of gender, in terms of class or race. You know, they're just really, really rich, um, you know, and group eating, you know, as you mentioned, social occasions for eating were actually a major focus that comes up over and over and over again in the America Eats papers, in part because um, administrators believed that it was in these group occasions, whether it was um, a church supper or a community picnic or um, a box supper or, you know, the, the meal after a dance, they thought it was in these group gatherings that authentic American food was most likely to be preserved. They thought it was when people got together that they cooked traditional foods. And so they told the writers to go out and try to get invited to these group events. You know, so you don't see many, many incidences of writers talking about you know, a solitary meal at home. Much more often they're visiting um, during the picnic or during the potluck. 
Right. And potlucks. I mean, potlucks are a, a whole a whole type of food gathering unto themselves. I mean, there you get people of, you know, all walks of life and, and backgrounds bringing a favorite dish that they think they cook well to a group event, which I think that's is right. just fascinating. Yeah, that's great. And fairs and festivals. You know, it used to be that a, a county fair or, a, you know, a state fair would have food of the region but like today it's just now big business so you see you know fried oreos from coast to coast right that's right that's right <laughs> so that's hopefully right. we will recapture some of those things that were lost um in were there any you mentioned a couple things like um oh the stewed beaver tail but were were some what we would call heirloom recipes actually uh re- recorded and captured that might otherwise have been lost that you know of I mean, I think so. Uh, it, it, it depends, you know, again, like, it's hard to say that this was a recipe that was, you know, sort of unchanging and preserved for decades and decades, but certainly there are hundreds and hundreds of recipes that I had never heard of, you know, interesting ways of cooking food, um, whether it was, you know, sourdough biscuits or, you know, a special kind of um you know, Brunswick stew that had to have squirrel meat, you know, all sorts of really cool older recipes that absolutely, um, you know, would have disappeared if not for this project because no one had recorded them in print. You know, they, they were, you know, specifically seen as sort of low foods, you know, foods that weren't fancy, that weren't company foods. And so people weren't writing them down. They weren't showing up in published cookbooks or in magazines. Right. And so I think that's going to be a great source for cooks, you know, just people who, you know, whether or not you're as interested in the history, they're, they're I think, going to be really interesting meals to cook at home. Right. You know, and that's in, something you brought up, a very interesting point, is that um, they were considered low food, something we shouldn't really bother ourselves with. If you're going to write mm-hmm. a cookbook, you then, you know, it should be something of, of exalted stature, right? You should be writing right. French cuisine or exactly. <laughs> something fancy. And I think it was so prescient of it's hard to believe that the wpa actually mm-hmm. you know thought of this that to you know that we're going to lose we're going to going to lose the record of what people actually cooked and actually ate and i just you know i i, I really encourage you know more work and more um on this project and and hope that this when you get this online that people will you know help will respond to it. Are you going to ask for people to, uh, is there going to be a place for comments and, and, Ab- and additions? Absolutely. In fact, we are um, specifically going to be asking for help with the recipes. Um, so one of the things we really want to do is we want to make it usable and accessible to cooks, as well as, you know, scholars, I think, are going to have a field day, and that's great. But we really also want people to be making these older recipes and we're going to actually invite people and ask them if they would help us transcribe them and do things like flagging ingredients to make it more searchable and more usable by future visitors to the website. So there will be the opportunity to interact with the materials in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. I think what's um, very interesting to to see and will be interesting to read in some of the America Eats uh, writings is that they've, as I said earlier, they, they managed to capture the voice of um, and the personality of the people who were cooking these foods. And we lose a lot of that in cookbooks today, too. But the head notes and the comments on recipes are so important. Um, talk about how something looks in your own voice and, um, and 
the way that you the way the people would cook at that time and and with a little bit of their own if you will accent i wish you know there were more they did do some recordings didn't they they they, in fact they had some plans for i think some radio broadcasts at one point yes we are unfortunately not including any sound recordings on the website in this so far in this version but it's yeah that would be another great way to get at it hmm do i see a project for myself in here yeah Right. Uh, there, But there were a lot of, there were some photographers who were sent around as well. There were a lot of photographs of this project, were there not? There there are a handful. We, oh, all, there, handful. we only have, um, you know, a couple of dozen, actually, that we're including in this project, um, because that's all that the Library of Congress currently has. But that's another thing we would love to include more of. Well, I did see somewhere online that there was a YouTube presentation on depression cooking. I don't know whether that was anything that was, that was from America Eats or not, but um, some 94-year-old grandmother. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Clara, I think her name is. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think it's related to America Eats, but it's a, it's a great um, thing in its own right. Yeah, I mean, you know, these oral histories are that uh, have become a very popular way of, of recording, um, you know, what went on in different times. Not food, not, not you know, relegated only to food, but oral histories are so valuable because you do as i say you just you record so much about about the culture about a person's life and and of course we all have to eat so someone has to cook right (laughs) and food is a big part of it well helen thank you so much for sharing your time about this project and i want to remind our listeners what it is again can you give us the exact website well your website is helenvite.com um, yes. And that talks about it. But what will the site be called? Does it have a, an official name? Yep. It is going to be whatamericaate.org. And what? it's going to launch this coming spring. It's not up yet, but it will be up in spring 2016. Terrific. Well, I can't wait to see what comes of this. And I, I hope that we can get a lot of people to log on and and read about it. And I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And thanks again for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.